Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. All right, I have with me today, Matt Galvin, who is the Global Vice President for Ethics and Compliance at AB InBev. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Cindy, welcome, thank you. Glad to have you here today. And for those of you who don't know, AB InBev is the largest brewer in the world. It's co-headquartered in Belgium and in New York. For many of us here in the US, I think we're most familiar with the AB part of uh, AB InBev, which is Anheuser-Busch. That's how I always knew it. I'm from Missouri and grew up there. So Anheuser-Busch is the part of the name that I know the best. AB InBev now, though, has approximately 170,000 employees in over 80 countries. It's a Fortune 200 company with revenue in 2019 of over $52 billion. So in addition to serving as AB InBev's Global VP for Ethics and Compliance, Matt's also the Vice Chair of the Anti-Corruption Committee for the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And in his free time, um, somehow he finds free time, he's also the adjunct professor uh, at Fordham Law School, teaching a law course there. Now, before joining AB InBev, Matt was in private practice with several national and international global law firms. And uh, I think one of the most cool things about Matt is that he is also an alum from Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, Go Hoyas, we share that in common. So thanks for joining us today, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you here. No, thank you so much, Cindy. Well, let's dive in uh, with you really talking about how the practice of governance and risk management and ethics and compliance has changed over time. We're we're looking at that topic from a couple of different angles and interested in your views. You've been in both private practice for many years now and also in-house. So what are the most striking changes that you've seen in how the practice of these risk management functions have changed over time? Sure. I mean, in, in talking about change in compliance this year, it's, it's impossible not to talk about the change, you know, caused by the global pandemic and how, you know, compliance itself, I think all compliance officers had to pivot and reprioritize just like everyone else in the businesses around the world on the fly with what we needed to manage. And I think a lot of us became, you know, experts in safety, and then we became experts in, you know, contract tracing and immunology and epidemiology and how do you kind of manage a safe workplace. And then, you know, once you get beyond kind of business continuity, you realize that the pandemic has also radically changed how we're interacting with our communities and with the other stakeholders, the governments and other organizations and our supply chain and in our communities. Because, you know, as much as we're hyper international in terms of a beer company. Beer is very local, right? Our supply chain, you know, is made of things that are heavy, you know, water, barley, hops. Our brands are, you know, tend to have very, you know, as much as Budweiser is an international brand, uh, which might sound strange to someone from Missouri, but it's, you know, more people drink 
Budweiser in China now than in the U.S. Wow. I didn't know that factoid. That's interesting. I have all sorts of facts about beer. We can do a whole (laughs) separate podcast on beer if you want. That'd be Um, fun. Happy hour. But you we're super local in just the nature of our business and the nature of our supply chains. And so with our communities at risk, we had all these projects of, you know, creating hand sanitizer from spent alcohol for non-alcohol beer. Yeah. And you recycle bottles to create plastic visors for medical professionals in Latin America. And a new one, you know, our Brazilian subsidiary Ambev is part of, I think, eight different companies doing um, scaling the vaccine that AstraZeneca and Oxford are doing. That's, you know, because we're good at fermentation at scale. And right. so, you know, we have expertise in how to take something like that. And even it sounds strange, but we're actually involved in the scaling of vaccines in Brazil. Now, from a compliance professional, that's, you know, that's, that's awesome. And I want to be a business enabler um, for that. But it also creates, you know, very different ways that you're engaging with the government and you have to pivot very quickly to allow for, those sorts of new government interactions to proceed in the right way. And if you put your kind of FCPA or foreign corrupt practices head on, you know, you have you know, certain markets where, you know, PPE is wildly inflationary, right? The bidding war goes up as much as we saw in the States that's amplified across emerging markets in Latin America and Africa. And then you have governments designating what PPE is needed. Well, then you have this kind of twin FCPA cocktail of like a highly inflationary environment that has to move quickly with government involvement in terms of what you can and cannot do. Right. And so kind of staying on top of those risks, communicating with the teams and enabling the business to pivot very quickly has been a big area where, you know, compliance has changed this year. When I look at how compliance has changed over the last, you know, five or six or 10 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember, you know, my practice when I was in private practice was mostly in East Asia. You know, I lived in China for seven years. And I remember doing like compliance trainings in China, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And it was really, really hard to get people's attention. You know, it was entirely about US law. So right away, you're talking about something that's like, you know, from Mars. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, the murkiness and the grayness of some business practices and how they translate in the FCPA can lead, you know, it's not necessarily great fodder for a clear training of introduction to anything because right. it becomes very nuanced, very difficult, very quickly. Um, but then when I was practicing in Hong Kong between 2011 and 2014, that all changed. And like the attitude and the government pivot towards corruption completely changed. And people's, the resonance of the message, and it was very easy. And compliance trainings were very easy to give in China in like 2014, because it was very focused and very top in mind because of the domestic government focus on corruption. And we've seen you know, a similar change in the last five years in Brazil mm-hmm. with Lava Jato and the focus there. And then other markets around the world, you see just a complete change with how people perceive this. Uh, Guatemala with the special prosecutor, you know, parts of Southeast Asia with other kind of UN initiatives and you see a, an amazing change. And so that's really changed how the message can re- resonate and how we communicate and how we can kind of operate within a global business. So have you seen the frontline managers really pick up and own this message more than they did today? I mean, I think back when you were talking about when you were doing the training before, it it sometimes felt like compliance and ethics was owned, if you will, by the compliance and ethics department where, you know, we are a business enabler um, in many companies and it should be owned by the frontline managers. Have you seen any change in attitude there with with, uh, um, the uptick and 
sort of enforcement of it around the world? Yeah, I'm sure you've had experience, right? Where it's like simultaneously, like you can have programs where you can say everyone's responsible for compliance and then you risk that no one is. But you also have on the other end of the spectrum if every corrupt action is the responsibility of compliance, well then, you know, you know, typically we're not the ones running around kind of acting badly. Right. And so having the right balance of kind of local commitment and kind of, you know, embedding compliance processes into incentive packages embedding compliance processes into how you architecture your IT and your solutions, you know, and it, there, there's so much partnership that's required. Yes. If you don't have kind of senior leadership on it, you won't succeed. And yeah. you can have the best policies in the world, but there's another, you know, I think there's a Chinese expression, you know, the mountain is high and the emperor is far away. And so this idea that you can have the best thing, but if you're not kind of, you know, integrated with the business and they don't feel your presence either through leadership or through some other means, it's not going to matter. So do you think that's changed over the years that people, uh, business managers have engaged more? I mean, I think the having more polls of anti-corruption prosecution has made it a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. Brazil and China, which are massive economies and hugely important to our business changing their focus on China and changing their focus on corruption, particularly on kind of supply side, multinational kind of parts of corruption um, has really changed, you know, I think how local managers view it. Yeah. Um, And there's also kind of cross government sharing of information um, in these global cases now that deal with corruption. Whereas I don't think that was so much the case before. Uh, so some of the, you know, the government agencies will share that information and it becomes truly a global issue. Yeah, totally. Right. I mean, you can go back to, you know, in the Siemens case, there were, I think there was kind of quiet exchange that led to some kind of domestic Chinese prosecution about 12, 13 years ago, but it was super opaque and not that clear right. um, how that all went down. And then you had for a while, and I think you still have this in some markets, just a total fear of like tack on. Uh, prosecutions. So if yeah. you have a, you know, in a CPA case, then suddenly the local government wants to jump in and then you have like, you know, 10 different regulators calling. And I think there has been a lot better communication, which yeah. in a lot of ways, you know, in some ways it's, you know, increased the risk profile, but in a lot of ways it's made it easier to kind of manage yeah. um, because it, it means you're, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of taming one big lion instead of hurting 15 small cats. Staying on the global point here for a minute, you've just picked up a new role with the OECD as the vice chair of the Anti-Corruption Committee. So share with us a little bit about that role, what you do in that role, and how that's informed your views about the future for the practice of risk management. I mean, it's so new, but it's been a really great experience and just seeing, you know, tremendous dedication of the OECD staff and tremendous dedication across the business at the OECD committee. And what it is, is kind of a group of business leaders that have an advisory position with the OECD and it's kind of policy creation arm. And so you you simultaneously get the opportunity to see how the OECD is working with governments around the world and setting policy agenda and exchanging best practices, which I think is incredibly valuable work. Yeah. But then they also realize that business needs to have a voice in the creation of that. And so, you know, that's the role of the, the business committee. And my committee is specifically focused on anti-corruption. And, you know, one key kind of 
regulatory change, if I had, you know, either a crystal ball or a magic wand, I'm not sure, some combination of the two. Yeah. Um, I would like to see a corporate compliance defense, right? So that if you have an adequate compliance program, have that be a, you know, complete affirmative defense yeah. to, you know, a charge against a, a corporation for corruption. Right. And, you know, part of what, you know, my kind of mission and mandate, you know, with the OECD is A, to kind of move things towards that. And B, you know, is since we do a lot with technology and a lot with that analytics of the InBev and kind of moving and how you can use that analytics to actually measure effectiveness of compliance, that to me is tied very closely to that kind of goal of, you know, adequate corporate compliance, because you can actually measure compliance adequacy or measure kind of risk through insights into data, well, then you actually have a very, you know, a better metric than is currently available at measuring the effectiveness of compliance program. Yeah. And so if you do that, well, then how could you not have a regulatory environment that both incentivizes that and recognizes a company that has it when they're doing it? That's, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Well, and I think you have a great platform from which to push for that with the OECD, given the work that you've been doing at AB InBev in that space. So let's move there and talk about uh, data analytics and and the BrewRight uh, data platform, analytics platform that y'all have set up there. So effective data analytics, I think we all know is the future generally, um, but it's also the future for ethics and compliance, machine learning and artificial intelligence and using that in our programs. But interestingly, there was a study from 2019 that said only about 13% of the program of the ethics and compliance programs at big companies were currently even using AI to fight fraud. Uh, you at AB InBev is a company that's, I would say, at the tip of that spear uh, of using artificial intelligence and data analytics. And it's interesting because you're not a tech company. And I think people would expect a tech company to have that mantle. So I, I find that even all the more interesting. So could you explain to us a little bit about the analytics platform? I think it's called BrewRight and how it works. Sure. So we're we're at kind of year four plus now of our journey with that analytics and our journey with the BrewRight platform. And a, a good way to think about it, it's like a, a system of roughly 16 different compliance apps that each compliance app takes you know, commercial data and certain compliance data and then helps compliance officers solve a compliance issue. And then the workflow of the compliance officer and using the app it also creates a data set that we then use to inform the underlying models. So it's a system of both compliance processes and compliance risk indicators that then learns as compliance officers use the system, which is pretty cool in itself. But then what it also does is allow for dynamic insights in the risk across different business lines within the company. And so different apps kind of interrelate and inform each other as each gets, each one gets smarter, then some of the other kind of cogs in the wheel get smarter, and then everything gets more efficient, but then you can also see where certain kind of risk indicators lie and where you should allocate resources. Let me give you an example. So starting back at like the compliance app. Well, what's a problem compliance officers have? Well, one would be, okay, in your supply chain or your value chain, which third parties um, are you worried about interacting with the government? You know, it's a very standard, FCPA kind of question. So who should I diligence? Now we, we have a rule and you know, we've always had a rule or at least the last 10 years or so 
that if you're interacting with the government or you, you with, a, with a third party agent, well, they have to go undergo diligence, they have to go through a compliance process. So what we did was go into our ERP systems or our accounts payable systems or what procurement uses to kind of manage third parties. And we took a bunch of you know, data and indicators from that and started to build models of what does it look like when we pay a third party vendor or when we kind of set up a, an invoicing system or PRPO for a third party vendor. Yeah. And over time, you know, since we've you know, cataloged you know, tens of thousands of these vendors, the model, you know, where we started with was a few roles that predicted about six or seven percent accuracy, which not uh-huh. great. Yeah. Now it predicts places over ninety percent accuracy, which third parties are interacting with the government. Um, so that kind of helps compliance officers very quickly kind of go through and be like, check, 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 sure. and this is what I need to do. And then what happens? Well, then you start cataloging your vendors and you assign kind of risk profiles to certain vendors of compliance. And then you look at the payments against your risk profile. And that kind of kind of manifests in two ways. One is to check your diligence. So if suppose you diligence a vendor to do you know, legal services in Mexico um, for like a litigation, but then suddenly they get a bullet payment for advisory services in dollars for like a, you know, a customs issue in Cancun. That's not what you diligence them for. And so you have this kind of ongoing kind of flag that can pop up if the way you're interacting with the vendor is not the way compliance kind of approved you to. Mm-hmm. And then even a more kind of, you know, more ambitious would be, okay, what payment with what vendors would actually be indicative of fraud and corruption? Mm-hmm. And so we're developing based upon historical investigations, based upon our proactive monitoring to both, you know, identify what specific transactions with what specific vendors should warrant additional review, um, all with the goal. I mean, I have to say we fell short of our initial goal that we set five years ago that we'd be able to predict and prevent fraud and corruption before it occurred. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to do that yet. You know, we're still just a very effective audit mechanism. I see. But I think as it evolves and as it gets, you know, uh, as it improves, I still see it's within reach to intercept kind of payments in that processing system as you're going through your business processing kind of, you know, business process of, of consummating a payment that you'd be able to intercept things before they happen. And that's the yeah. goal. That's like, you know, three or four of the dashboards and how they interact. And then yeah. you know, they build a view of the risk profile of a business unit. Yeah. yeah. So the other thing that struck me as effective with the, the, the BrewRite um, analytics platform from what I've read about it is that other frontline areas of the company have access to it and use it as well. So it's, it's very transparent in its um, use and um, can be used by, you know, sales folks and the folks in finance and as well as the folks from compliance to kind of all look at the data together. How does that, how does that play out? Yeah. One of the advantages we had early, you know, I think in an early version of BrewRide, was to take and create this app-based structure of like 16 different apps. Because the first version of it, like before we had you know, started actually doing it, before we went to scale, you know, we had like did a test program um, about five years ago. And we looked at kind of systems data from Brazil and India. And you had a single dashboard that you could pretty much look at everything and it was super cool and you could go in and out. But it was so complicated. It was like the you know cockpit of an F-16. And like, it's like, okay, this is great, but it's like, me and maybe the head of audit will ever really ever use right. it. What the app kind of approach allowed us to do was have certain workflows 
that we kind of keep to a smaller group within kind of the high priests or priestesses of compliance. And then workflows like, you know, searching for duplicate payments, which is right. normally the provenance control or audit. And we could kind of release those to a broader use of different people in the business. I see. Um, so right away, you have different workflows that allow for, you know, we have kind of say when our corporate credit card spend, we have certain workflows to get triggered that look, you know, go to procurement or the people that manage just your kind of rules around expenses and other ones that would go to compliance because they're kind of indicative of either, you know, alcohol beverage law or corruption concerns and risk. Right, right. And so they create separate workflows. But the other piece about it, you know, one thing I, I have kind of decided a few years ago when I kind of was elevated to the my current role was really one of the kind of both opportunities and missions of a compliance officer should be to do to drive transparency Agreed. and by bringing that together and allowing kind of breaking down silos and allowing different functions to see what each other was doing at least with their money was a great was a much better way to manage risk than just kind of processing people to death mm-hmm. and the more transparency you can drive to what they're doing the better people are going to manage their own risks and help kind of manage each other's risks and you right. enable a lot of to both operate more effectively and manage the risk more holistically. And so how is that, how is that playing out then at, in AB InBev? Because I really, I think that's super important is to operationalize it and, and let the frontline uh, managers essentially understand it better so they can start controlling it on their own. Have you seen some real benefits in that regard? Totally. And just the speed and access to information is yeah. very empowering. I remember, uh, you know, a while back where we were integrating, you know, our businesses in Africa, uh, there was a question about, you know, how were procurement processes run. And for me, procurement does, you know, as much if not more of third party risk management than compliance ever would because just the vast majority of you know, agents are going through them rather than us. And so, you know, you can quickly see, okay, we have questions in the data about, you know, are the procurement processes being followed perfectly in a certain country? And, you know, the head of procurement would be like, oh, it's fine. You can see all my people tell me it's perfect. But then you have the data and you can quickly say, no, I see these one-off payments being made here and these going here. And you can quickly just kind of cut through a lot of, you know, the fact collecting that kind of leads you to discussion. And you can have one meeting instead of seven. And And one version of the truth, it sounds like, because it's all in one platform that's transparent that everyone can see. Absolutely. Exactly. And that that allows kind of different business functions to see quickly interact, identify a problem and address it without having to get lost in kind of, you know, what, what might not come through in kind of a normal fact-finding process or traditional fact-finding process. That's, that's really, really valuable. So what do you, what do you think is the next step for BrewRight? What's the, what's the future? What are you working on next? Well, I mean, one of the, one of the difficulties in building kind of creating AI or supervised learning models uh, for something like corruption is, is, well, we're by no means a perfect company. It's not like we have so many instances of issues that I can really kind of have a data set that will train really good models. If you look at your corporate credit, your credit card, right? Your MasterCard or Visa, they have really good algorithms that look for kind of fraud against credit card companies. The reason why they have it, it's something they have like 200 instances of fraud per second, right? And that can build, once you start identifying that, the data set you get from that is extremely powerful, which is why they're like at over 99% accuracy when someone tries to rip off the credit card company. Right. 
to build that with a company, you know, ours, even with our kind of massive scale, it takes a long time to build data sets and, you know, label them correctly to really build super kind of effective models. And so the better way to do it would be work as part of a consortium that if you start pulling insights into transactional patterns across a multiplicity of companies, well then, then you can start to hit a scale that will allow your models to get better exponentially faster, mm-hmm. particularly if the is kind of providing feedback into performance. Mm-hmm. And then you train, you know, really effectively what, what is not only a risk transaction, but what, what is always safe? What's always mm-hmm. a safe transaction? The vendor profile would always be safe. These we have massive data sets for. And you can really kind of build together, you know, through a consortium models that I think would be incredibly useful to, you know, the, not just come to compliance community, but the business community as a whole. And so I think the next step in the journey, and this is something our CEO talked about at Davos in January, is taking models based off rewrite and unleashing them as part of a network or a consortium where, you know, multiple companies can share insights. And one of the neat innovations in the architecture we've, you know, I, I kind of, we're kind of halfway from ideation to implementation, but it's an idea of putting that on a distributed platform so that these insights can be shared without sharing any underlying data and creating kind of secure exchange of information through patterns yeah, that right. can kind of, you know, in a federated way, right. reviewed across you know, right. the whole network. Very interesting. So are you, are you in the, are you, so between ideation and implementation, are you uh, talking with any other companies about that yet? Oh, very many. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of interest, both in terms of the tech, in terms of building and the companies which to start, because the thing about, right, I don't advise anyone to try to recreate a bright in their spare time. It was, you know, an arduous and expensive journey, but one that had a lot of support and you know, a lot of victories as well as a lot of setbacks along the way. What I do suggest compliance officers do is start hiring you know, data scientists and data engineers to help them get insights. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's gonna happen is what a consortium is gonna do, and this is important with any sort of the success of any technology, it's gonna make it a lot cheaper to do this because you know, the costs of doing a Brewrite, a lot of it is figuring out how to normalize data and get data that in a form that you can run algos on. A little bit is on getting the algos, but you can get cheap algos for free off the internet if you were to Google like what's a pattern for fraud. Uh-huh. The problem is they're not effective, right? Um, because the true cost of it is when you're using algorithms that aren't that effective, you get a lot of false positives. And the time and energy you take reviewing transactions is you know either expensive in terms of human hours or time. Right. And so by skipping through, you know, if you start with models that are much more predictive and you already know what that is in the pilot, you kind of leapfrog several steps and kind of cost concerns that you would have if you tried to do it on your own. And so part of the goal of the network is just to make this really cheap and really accessible to the business right. community right. into kind of other stakeholders so that you can move forward very quickly. So one last question on BrewRite. Is it used for uh, any other aspects besides f- fraud and finding patterns in fraud? Yeah, I mean, there's 16 different apps that do so many different things, you know. But with some of our business units, we even have arrangements that when we recover money, we split the proceeds with the business unit and the feedback in the BrewRite. 
Um, so that's, you know, looking for duplicate payments or just kind of accounting okay. issues. We also have, you know, we track in patterns within our case management system for investigations mm -hmm. so that if you had high incidents of theft in a certain area, you can kind of pick up that that's an issue. We also evaluate how cases are investigated and managed. You know, what's the average length of time that certain cases take? And then what's the substantiation rate of certain investigation units or certain investigators so that you can evaluate you know, the performance of the compliance team itself. Yeah. Um, we look for indicators of their investigations. You know, are you treating more senior people within your investigations portfolio softer than you're treating more junior people? Mm -hmm. Or is part of your business just kind of soft on crime? Yeah. And so we have metrics that we use to evaluate the performance of our, of our compliance teams itself. And there's more. I mean, we have like a really cool corporate credit card um, analytics tool that is, you know, I think we recovered something like 400,000, we think, uh, this year in a single business unit. Wow. Um, wow. Of and so there's all sorts of stuff that like different aspects of the program is kind of, you know, that we look to measure ROI, uh, particularly this year, right? Where, yeah. you know, it's hard not year. a great year. Yeah, it's a hard year. So anything we can do to help the business, you know, 400,000, not a big number for my company, but it's, you know, a bigger number than most compliance programs have for a single yeah. business unit for the area. Yeah. One last question for you before we'll turn to, to a fun question at the very end to wrap it up. Um, so you were just talking there about helping the business. So my question to you is, what can universities and business schools in particular do to help future business leaders, those folks that you advise at AB InBev, be prepared to manage this evolving world of risk management and governance and ethics and compliance better as a frontline manager. If there were three things that you thought universities could do to help in that regard, what would it be? Yeah, you know, it's, I have a great fortune. I get to do work, a lot of work with, with different parts of academia. And now and then I come across, you know, folks focused on different parts of corporate ethics. And one thing, whenever you talk to someone doing ethics, the first thing they always tell you, like invariably, is how few people are doing ethics and how few programs have an ethical uh, component to them. And I think, you know, as you reflect on, you know, if you do this long enough, and I'm sure you have this experience, right? You see, have seen, seen so many people reach points in their careers that just made either stupid decisions or unethical decisions or some sort of decisions that I'm sure they had they taken a time to reflect or either had the skills or tool set to reflect, right. they wouldn't have made And they realized that the cost benefit that they thought they were running right. was way off. Right. They totally, the costs, either that they just didn't have kind of certain types of, you know, enough third rails of what they wouldn't do in their kind of calculus that it, it made what should have been an easy decision very difficult. Right. And I think that that's a big challenge. I think one thing I've benefited from, you know, a lot of people ask me like, cause I do so much in technology and law and compliance um, that I must have some sort of technical background. And I, I mean, my undergraduate degree was in creative writing and in Chinese studies. But I think when I look back, you know, having spent too much time in China, well, I get very comfortable you know, operating in an environment without always knowing exactly what was going on. And so I think that was a lesson in a humility that I kind of, whenever I'm in like deeply immersed in tech discussions, I've gotten comfortable in environments and I don't always know exactly what's going on. 
but I'm not afraid to ask stupid questions. You know, I'm not afraid to ask, you know, what does this mean? What is that? And just kind of build blocks that I understand and can articulate and explain things. Right. I think the third, you know, I think consensus building and communication are two very under um, appreciated corporate skills. Yes. And you know, the ability to bring people on, recognizing interested stakeholder groups and understanding how to communicate effectively across is so critical to kind of doing something like, you know, building, you know, a legal analytics platform because you have to talk to so many different functions. Right, and right. And find ways to kind of meet them halfway while yeah. trying to achieve the vision. Um, so for better or for worse, I'm, you know, fairly flexible with how this evolves. Um, it can drive my teams absolutely crazy as we pivot, but I think it's necessary to have that flexibility in order to get, you know, acceptance for uh, a program like this yeah no i think you're right and those are those are three really good points so thank you for sharing those with us so one last fun question as we wrap up here in this uh covid time that we're in have you read anything or have you watched anything of late that was kind of fun but also interesting and had some sort of an ethical dilemma to it yeah you know i mean i, I oscillate from like super complex like that analytics and then like children's movies on a regular <laughs> basis but, yeah you know and then when i have a moment you know i think harari's recent book the, the 21 lessons for the 21st century i think yes. it's you know, one of the chapters is talking about you know we face so many problems that are truly global yet our kind of political systems are hypernational and you know are they equipped to solve it and he's like you know focused on climate change is a great example and in many yes. respects corruption is a great example but, you know, as we look in the last few months, you know, the question of like a corporation's role within ethical and kind of geopolitical um, challenges is really being revisited. It you is. Know, can a corporation sit on the sidelines uh, of a difficult social debate? Can it truly be apolitical or can it truly, you know, not have take a position on, on climate change? Right. And these are questions, you know, I think that are driven correctly by part consumers, um, but also part by, you know, the management and the people themselves. I mean, do you want to be part of a company that isn't taking a position on these things? And what does that say? And is that the right role? And I think yeah. traditionally it was, you know, it was so accepted for corporations to stay out of the fray. Yeah. Um, there's a different set of expectations now. Yeah. Um, how far that's going to go and how long it's going to last. Um, you know, and do you necessarily wanting, want your corporations to be political or I think fundamental questions that we're all struggling with. Yeah, I agree. Well, Matt, this has been fantastic. Thank you for taking the time um, out of your COVID day to have this conversation with us. It was incredibly uh, interesting and inspiring to see how far one company has come with the use of its data analytics. And I love the consortium idea. I look forward to hearing more about that. So thank you very much. Thanks, indeed. No, it's one of my favorite parts about the compliance community is how open and helpful we are. So I'd like to be a part of it. I agree. All right. Bye. Thank Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for 
the Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.